0: Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks and I'm Jen oneill Smith and this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love.
1: So welcome to episode 54. Hi,
0: guys. I just want to start out by saying thank you so much. I'm just jumping right into it, Sally. Do it. Jump because, in. Uh, uh, I want to thank you guys so much for all of the birthday eleven for the donations. Sally set it up. She's a doll. <laughs> Where if you guys donated to Black Lives Matter and the Atlanta Solidarity Fund... And you did. And then we did. And so we raised a pretty good amount of money. And I'm really thankful and grateful. And I love you guys so much.
1: We love you, Jen. Thanks, man. And then we had a little bit of money left over. So we added a little bit of money to the fund. And we were matching donations in celebration of the Supreme Court decision. And you guys donated to the Trans Justice Funding Project, and we matched your donations, and we're so proud of that. We're proud of you guys, and we're so thankful that you guys just got on board and donated and and that we were able to raise some money. So thank you, guys.
0: Yeah, you guys are the best. The best. The best. Should we get into some quick haze? Yes. Please. You go first this
1: week. Okay, I'm going to do it. Hey, Jen. Yes. My quickie today is a story about complicated relationships in families Ooh. and the need to feel supported in your dreams and also the love of reality competitions. So a guy named Gregory Wary he's 25 years old, went to his brother and his family and was like, you guys, I'm going to enter into America's got talent. Ooh. And his family was like, fuck off. <laughs> you don't have any talent. We're not paying for you to go to an audition. Whatever. Get out of here. I mean, that huh. sounds harsh. But then when you hear what Greg is like, I think oh. that you'll be on his or like side. So. What his talent is. i don't, it never says what his talent is. So. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Greg gets mad because his family isn't supporting him and he leaves the house and then his parents leave and Greg comes back and starts screaming at his brother and is just like, you don't believe in me? I can't believe this. I want to win. America's got talent. And then Greg starts punching his brother. <gasps> so he oh. punches his brother into the in the face and then his brother was just like, whatever, and puts the, Greg into a chokehold. Greg is biting his brother's arm and the, he had the chokehold on so long that actually Greg passed out. Oh my God. Which I guess is what is supposed to happen in Show Cold. Anyway, so Greg felt Greg was passed out. His brother called the police. Greg woke up and left the house and started walking down the street. And so officers found him and they were like, your brother called the police. We heard that you really want to be on America's Got Talent. And I <laughs> was like, yeah, I did punch my brother. I did. And he was like, I'm going to kill him if he files charges because then I won't be able to try out for America's Got Talent. And they oh. were like my god they were like well he is gonna press charges after <gasps> so they arrested him and while he was in the police cru- cruiser he said i'm gonna kill my brother i'm gonna slit his throat oh my god and he's now being held in jail what so. if his
0: talent was murder <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's like i can't kill him yet
0: <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying to tell you guys what my talent is
1: <laughs> listen to me Oh, my God. So, Dude, I, that's I guess crazy. I just to say you should support your siblings' dreams. <laughs> yeah. Or Uncle baby Bobby, we support you. <laughs> we support
0: you. That's so crazy that we both have reality TV show themed, but mine is so different. So okay. different. Okay. Well, obviously, if you guys know anything about me, I love a nice juicy reality show. My information that I got was from a vulture.com article written by Jackson McHenry. So back on Netflix, back for season 2 is a show called Dating Around. I've already watched all of them. <laughs> <laughs> at the show what it, Dating Around is each episode follows one person that goes on a date with the same exact date with five different people. So it just keeps it's a lot of edits, a lot of cuts so like This they're at the same table but now it's this person now it's that person then they go here and now it's this person now it's that person so they date like five different people and at the end of the show it's revealed who that person decided to go on a second date with because it shows them like meeting up to go on the second date this article is about how on season one fan favorite Gurki bazra did find love but not with any of the five people that she went on the dates with. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and I will tell you why. Okay, this poor girl, this episode, this was from season one, and I remember this episode because I wanted to jump into the screen and beat the shit out of this guy. This poor girl actually endured one of the worst dates that was ever on the show. When she went on a date with this guy, Justin, he was a total douchebag. And he just, right out of the gates, had, like, a chip on his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And then they sit down just to have pre-dinner drinks, even. And he's explaining – he's, like, mansplaining to her what love is, you know?
1: Okay. He
0: was – Like, totally talking down to her, and he was berating her. He was just saying things like, See, love is like you have to give a part of yourself up, and then you have to like lose that part of yourself to love another person. And and she's gorgeous. She was so sweet. And she was like, See, I I disagree with that. I feel like love is being your whole self and loving another person who is their whole self, and you come together, and that's what love is. And he was like, How would you even know? How, and you're like, just a total total fucking asshole. Like, And then he was saying things like, well, I guess you haven't dated enough New Yorkers like me. And then he goes, the worst thing he fucking said, he goes, well, you were divorced at 32. So how would you even know what love is? Like what a motherfuck. Totally. And then he was like, I I guarantee you what happened was, is that he walked in, he saw how gorgeous she was. And he was like, I'm going to be an asshole and I'm going to, Reject her before she rejects me. Yeah. So that I come off on TV looking like the cool guy and. But he didn't, he ended up looking like a fucking fool. And he told her when he was like laying into her, this poor girl, he told her that saying I do in front of all of her friends and family during her first wedding was a complete lie. And that she lied to her ex-husband by marrying him. And he was like, how could I ever trust you? How could I trust you? And she was just like, "Um, I don't think you can. So maybe like, we're obviously not going to go on a second date. You know, she, right. handled, <laughs> she handled herself with such grace and I would mm-hmm. not, have (laughs) no I would not have (laughs) and the fuck out of here (laughs) I know and so he, he just ends up like storming off the date or whatever but he like I said he's the one that looks like the idiot so as a viewer to watch this episode it's very painful but the thing is had that not happened she would not have met the man that she is still in love with today And that person was the director of the show, James Adolphus.
1: Yeah. Nice. Oh, so he so, gave her a good edit.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I I like, I don't think that was a good edit. I think that was just a, totally what happened. And yeah. yeah and so, uh, so Gerke explained in an interview with Oprah Magazine, she said that after the date, I was upset and crying. He came up to me and gave me a hug and he checked on me on Instagram afterwards. That's how he and I started talking. So I'm sure he felt the same way we all did, you know, watching it, like you just want right. to like hug her and. Be like, he this guy's a fuck face, and you're gorgeous and beautiful and like and smart. And I feel like I keep talking about how gorgeous she is. She's a lovely (laughs) person and she's very smart. You do want to swoop in and help her. But the two didn't start dating until after the episode filmed. But what's weird is that I told you how at the end of each episode it shows who that person ends up going out on a second date with. Yeah. But on her episode, they did like this already reveal of her standing in the street and and there was no men came up because she decided that she didn't want to go on a date with any of them and that yeah. she was just going to keep waiting for Mr. Right. But what's funny is in that shot of where she's walking down the street and she just smiles at a random handsome stranger, that uh-huh. is James. <gasps> So she said, I didn't actually know he was going to be in that scene. The smile is genuine and me smiling and being surprised is genuine. Like she didn't know that when she turned around, she was going to see him there but she like smiles. And so they went out on a date of their own. And then they kept in touch after the show premiered, even though they lived on, they did live on opposite sides of the country. He was in LA and she was in New York, but once they became more serious, Gherky moved to LA in the summer of 2019. She said that things got more serious when they quarantined together in March. And that's when they decided to go public with the relationship. So both of them have been married before and Gurky. He told Oprah Magazine. um, How
1: can they know what love is then?
0: I know. (laughs) Those liars. I know. So she said, we have baggage from our past relationships. We're working through all that fun stuff. It's a cute and fun story, but there's a lot of work in the day in, day out. It's a grown-ass relationship. And yeah. Wow, that, that that's great and sweet. It does a little bit sound like that is a quarantine quote. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she was like, no, we have some problems. Because <laughs> like, they're like smacking the quarantine of being stuck with each other. Every couple is like that right now. But they do love each other. And I think it's a really great little story there. Very interesting. And yet another story about how you can find love on reality television. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, Jen, I've never said you could. Hey Jen. Hey Sally. Are you ready for a crazy story?
0: I am very ready for a crazy story.
1: Jen? Like too I gotta much. Tell you, <laughs> like too. Like you're a little worried about how you <laughs> about kidding. This. <laughs> Yes. You know, since I know how much you love sports, this is Eat- another <laughs> Sports-ish story, kind of. Okay. Okay. I got my information from an amazing article on ESPN from a writer named Allison Glock from a Sports Illustrated article by writer Jacob Feldman and from the Orlando Sentinel by Bianca Prieto. And if you're wondering why I always have so many sports stories, it's because my husband Ben sends them to me. (laughs) That's why. (laughs) Nice. Okay. So I just want to give a little warning up front that the top part of this story is a bit brutal. So just, you know, hang on for that. Oh, okay, if you're feeling a little squeamish or just not in the mood for being upset by brutality, maybe skip the first couple minutes. Okay. So on November 23rd, 2010, Christy Salters Martin was sitting on the edge of her bed in her home in Apopka, Florida, talking on the phone with an old high school friend, Sherry Lusk. As they ended their call, she laid back on the bed. She had a splitting headache. She just decided to lace up her shoes and go for a run when her husband of 20 years, Jim Martin, walked into the room. And he's holding something behind his back. He says, I need to show you something. And then before she even can respond, he pulls out a nine-inch buck knife and stabs her in the toilet. (gasps) Oh, my God. It's so quick that she doesn't know what happened. He then stabs her three more times in the chest she falls back, and she kicks her legs out at Jim, just trying to fight him however she can. He lunges at her again with the knife. This time, he slices her calf all the way to the bone. Oh, God. Sorry. So No, it's, it's okay. Okay. So during the struggle, Jim cuts himself with a knife, and when he drops it, Christy tries to escape but she falls when she gets to the bottom of the bed and Jim pins her down and starts beating Christie's head on the floor. Uh-oh. She can feel a gun in his pocket and she grabs for it. The clip falls out of the gun, but Jim manages to grab it. And then he hits her across the face with the gun over and over. Uh-oh. And that's when Christy looks Jim right in the eye and yells, motherfucker, you cannot kill me. <gasps> Jim then stands up. He takes the gun which she realizes is the pink pistol that she keeps at her bedside, he looks at her and he fires a bullet into her chest.
0: Oh my God.
1: So Christy starts begging for Jim to call 911. She knows she's dying. Jim walks to the bedside, unplugs the landline phone and says, oh, I can't get it to work. I wonder why. This goes on for 30 minutes until Christy can't plead any longer. Her breathing slows. Her eyes roll back into her head. And Jim walks into the bathroom to take a shower. Okay, so Christy Martin was born Christy Salters, and she was from Itman, West Virginia, which is a tiny, tiny coal town. The woman who wrote the ESPN article described it like this. She says, Appalachia makes turtles of its people. You grow to the confines of your cage, drag cumbersome hard shells around. If you happen to be reared as Martin was in the forlorn heart of rural West Virginia, flanked by dense hollers, inhaling air thick with dust and fume of an industry indifferent to your survival, you know your worth with firm certainty, which is to say, not much. Oh, wow. Okay, so Christy was the firstborn in her family, and she was super close with her dad. He told her she could do anything she wanted to do, be anything she wanted to be. She was a super athletic and aggressive kid, and her dad encouraged her talents. He would run basketball drills with her after his shifts in the mines. Their hard work paid off, and she ended up getting a basketball scholarship to Concord University about an hour from where she grew up. And then after college, when she was just 22 in 1989... Christy entered what was called a tough man contest, which was like an early MMA fight.
0: And because she
1: was just naturally tough and athletic, she actually did really well. And someone who saw her there offered her a professional boxing match. And she'd never been to a boxing gym. She had never fought before, but she accepted. And the idea was kind of they, they offered her this match so that she would be kind of like the patsy for a better fighter. But she Went to this fight, and she ended up winning that match, too. She says, "Wow, take the shit out of the girl. At her third fight, she knocked her opponent out. A promoter suggested that she train more formally at a boxing gym in Bristol, Tennessee. And that is where she met Jim Martin. So Jim was the head coach at the boxing gym. At first, he wanted nothing to do with Christy or any woman trying to become a boxer. He let her know instantly that he didn't want her to be there. He actually...
0: Told Rude. The story.
1: Yeah, he would but he would actually tell the story that he had planned to like basically scare her away. He was gonna have someone break her ribs. Oh my but god. And then the owner of the boxing gym came in and he was like, I want her here. I have invited her here. So Jim begrudgingly agreed to train Christy. And Christy like was like, this is something I'll do for six months. She had just graduated from college. She was like, this is just a way I can use my athleticism before I have to get a real job. And, but she was just like naturally talented and she started winning fight after fight. And she became known for being fearless and for knocking out her opponents. And of course, like it didn't hurt that this is the early 90s and she looked like a girl out of a White Snake video. And, oh, wow. Right. And so, Jim, Jen- I'm just picturing um, Glow. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yes. Sounds awesome. I
1: mean, it's more, it's like real boxing. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But I mean, just like like a badass with like an awesome 80s haircut. Yes, she had
1: big, I mean, she had big bangs and like a perm and they would dress her all in pink and she's like five foot four. But so Jim starts seeing Christy as an opportunity, right? And so he changed his tune about her. And Christy says- He would tell me, I'm going to make you the best woman fighter ever and make myself lots of money. And it was always all about what Christy could do for him. Uh, And so, you know, Christy at the time was 24, Jim was 49, and uh, she, as coming from this tiny town, she didn't see herself as someone who had a lot of opportunity. And so Jim really was this, like, he took over her life and they got together romantically and he decided they needed to get married. And so, two years after they met, they were married. And Christy said she knew she wasn't in love with Jim, but she thought she needed him and that this is what he wanted. So, she went along with it. And so, women's boxing, I had no idea, but it was huge in the 90s. And so, and Christy was talented, but she also caught the attention of the media because she was this like, Fierce competitor. She was like no bullshit. She fought under the name the Coal Miner's Daughter, and she was ruthless with her competitors. So she once knocked a girl out with a punch and then spit on her. And it was like wow. Like the media ate it up, and she became incredibly popular. She started earning up to one hundred fifty thousand dollars for one fight, and. In 1994, she was fighting at this small venue in Vegas and Don King was there. Do you remember Don King? He was a fight promoter. He had the big Uh, hair. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. So, and he saw, so he saw like how magnetic Christy was. And she actually became the first woman signed by Don King.
0: Wow. How do I, I like, I'm surprised that I've never heard of her before. I know. She sounds like
1: a badass. She is badass. So she she had this epic fight in 1996. It was before a Tyson fight. They do like undercards. I don't know. I don't know anything about boxing, but apparently she was like the opener. (laughs) She was. Uh The fight was like so huge. She was better than the headliner, Jen. And Um, it was watched by more than a million fans on pay-per-view. And after that fight, it led to all of these offers to appear on TV shows and late night shows. And before... Her fighting career ended. She earned 4.5 million from boxing. She had guest starred on Roseanne. She appeared frequently on Really. Yeah. Wow. Lena Letterman, 60 Minutes, Good Morning America, The Today Show. She traveled the world. Celebrities would like shout her name in airports. She became the only woman boxer to appear on the Sports Illustrated cover. Wow. She was yeah, she was a huge nap. and she was she was known for knockouts which really was kind of rare for women boxers. So this is her public view, but then at home Jim had complete control and Christy was living a nightmare. He had isolated her from her family and friends, convincing her that they were all ashamed of her. He told her she was stupid, she was ugly, anything. Any success was all due to him. And every failure was like her fault. And he controlled all of her money, but he spent freely on himself buying himself Harleys and clothes. And he just he never told her where her money was or how much she had. Oh, my God. And And then he started filming her. And he filmed her in sexual positions without her knowledge. (gasps) He installed secret cameras throughout the house. Holy shit. Yeah, he would hold these photos over her. He would sometimes show them to, to his friends. And he told her that if she ever left him, he would send the video to everyone in her life, including her parents, who are these very religious, small town people. And, oh my god! And Jim had her parents fooled. Like her, her mom, especially, always loved Jim and thought that he was looking after her daughter. She says she had no idea what was going on, and Jim would tell her that if she ever tried to leave, he would kill her. And at first, she didn't think he was serious, but as time went on, she realized that he was and things got worse as her career of course started to wind down. Her contract with Don King ended in 2001, and then she's, you know, she was getting older and she started losing and by 2006 she was out of the media spotlight. And she started using cocaine, which was supplied by Jim who was using cocaine to kind of keep her under his thumb. Yeah, uh, like yeah. because she would probably need to go to him for the coke. Yes. Yeah, exactly. What a piece of shit. She said that he would dole it out in the mornings to her. And sometimes if she was still training, like if she had boxing gloves on, he would give it to her so she didn't have to take her boxing gloves off. Like it was totally a tool, right? To just keep her down. So by 2010, she was only fighting occasionally. The money had dried up. And Christy, who had once been the world's best woman boxer felt hopeless at only 42 years old. Oh, my God. But then one day in March 2010, her old friend, Sherry Lusk, sent her a message on Facebook. It it popped up like, hey, here's someone you might know. And Sherry says she laughed out loud and then just sent a message to Christy and was like, hey, how are you doing? And the message actually made Christy think of a very different time in her life. Because when they were in high school, Christy and Sherry had actually been a couple in secret. It was the 80s in West Virginia, and there was just no way that they could see to be out there. Christy says, I believed in order to have my family, I needed to be with a man. I didn't really have a choice. So Sherry and Christy began texting and calling, and Christy began confiding in Sherry about her marriage and her drug problem. And Christy told Sherry that there was no way she could leave Jim because she wouldn't survive. But reconnecting with Sherry just reminded Christy that there were other options for her. For so long, her whole life had become a tunnel of just Jim. Mm-hmm. And she he had convinced her he was gaslighting her. He was telling her that nobody loved her, that he was the only one who could do anything for her. And, you know, she thought if she left him, he would kill her. But just having this glimpse into another life, she said, okay, I, I started to believe there might be other people who might care for me. So... In early November, Christy told Jim that she wanted a divorce, and he was actually surprisingly calm about it. He told her, okay, but let's stay together until your next fight, and then we can split that money and separate. And Christy, for the first time, saw a glimmer of hope, and she stopped using cocaine, and she started training again. But then on November 18, 2010, Christy went to meet Sherry in person for lunch, and she told Jim that she was going and during that lunch, Jim called and texted Christy over and over with messages that just kept saying, I will destroy you. Oh and God. Jim then texted a still from a video he had running on, on a television. He like took a screen grab of his wife using a sex toy. And he was like, just <gasps> remember, I have this. Oh, my God. So then four days later, on November 22nd, Sherry and Christy met again, this time at a hotel in Daytona Beach. And when Christy got out of the car and saw Sherry, she ran up, she said hello, she hugged her, she kissed her, and her phone started ringing immediately, and it was Jim. And he said, I followed you. She hung up the phone and ran inside the hotel, and he texted, I'm so close to you, I could touch you. Oh my God. And before she left the hotel, Christy told Sherry, that motherfucker is going to shoot me. But Christy says that she was ready for this to end, one way or another, even if that meant death. She actually phoned her friends on that day after she met Sherry and told them that her marriage was over and that she loved them. She said that she was saying goodbye just in case. So she returned home the next day, November 23rd, and that was when Jim attacked her.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Okay. So after Jim stabbed, beat, and shot Christy, he watched as she bled out and then got into the shower sure that she was dead, but Christy wasn't dead, motherfucker. Hell yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hell yeah, Christy. Yeah. She heard the water running. Wow. And she knew this was her chance to escape. So she opened her eyes. She forced herself to stand up. She grabbed the pink gun that he had used to shoot her and beat her, and she dragged herself out the front door and down this long, winding driveway to the street She flagged down a car and the driver lowered his window and Christy just said, please don't let me die. The driver led her into the car and called 911. And she got out just in time because according to court documents, Jim had gotten into the shower, colored his hair put on his jewelry and a pair of boxer shorts, and he was going out of the bathroom to search for a clean shirt when he discovered that Christy was gone. And so <sighs> he ran out to the driveway wearing only his underwear, and just as he got out there, he sees the car that Christy was in driving away and disappearing disappearing down the street. So when Christy got to the emergency room, it took two hours for doctors to stabilize her, her lung was punctured in two places. Um, and then, as soon as they could, a medical team life flighted her to a larger trauma hospital wow. in Orlando, where surgeons stitched her leg back together, warning her that she might never walk again. They sewed the lacerations on her head, her side, her ear had become unattached. And so they oh, reattached no. her ear. And then the bullet in her chest would actually stay put for a couple more weeks until the police needed to take it out for evidence. They say that she was in the hospital for seven days, and then on the eighth day, she went to the gym. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Jim was actually caught four days later hiding in a neighbor's shed. And at his trial, Christy testified about every horrible thing that had happened in her 18-year marriage. She finished her testimony. She hopped down from the stand and she hadn't seen Jim since the day that he attacked her. And as she got off the stand, she made a beeline and she leaned over. She looked him right in the eyes and she said, I hope you rot in hell, you motherfucker. And then she walked out of the courtroom. Oh my God. Oh no. So Jim took the stand. He said he didn't stab his wife, he didn't shoot her, he didn't cut her calf. He claimed that the gun misfired during a struggle. And the prosecutor was like, So, your theory is a bullet magically ricocheted down, cut. Her calf in half bounced back and just happened to end up in the middle of her chest. And Jim said, it's my truth. We were together 24-7. No one stays with anybody for 24-7 unless they love each other. Oh, my God. And he was just like, oh, so I'm so bad, but she was married to me for 20 years. Oh, my God. It took five hours for the jury to find James Martin guilty of attempted second degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years, and that would make him 93 years old at his scheduled release. But it has he has had a stroke and and is in pretty poor health right now. So good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, motherfucker. So I highly recommend reading that ESPN article. Wow. Um, okay. I just wanna Oh, wait, Christy, I have one more thing. Okay, what's her last name? Christy Martin Salters. No, Christy Salters Martin. Christy okay, so salter I just want to see a picture of her. Sorry. Okay, there's so much more to this story than I could even tell you, but I did want to end on one thing. So Christy Salters, who fought back from her injuries, she boxed again after this attack. She bought Back from poverty, from drug addiction, and from the PTSD of the attack and the abuse, has found love again, and she's oh. now happily married. She actually, Yay. yes, she actually met her wife Lisa Hallween in 2001, back when they were both boxers fighting at the Mandalay Bay in Vegas. And Lisa says, at weigh-in, when I got off the scale, I said, "Good luck, Martin," and she said, "Good luck getting knocked the fuck out." <laughs> First (laughs) words to each other. (laughs) And Christy won that fight too. That's so awesome. Oh my God. So that is my story of the badass Christy Salters Martin. Holy shit. That
0: is awesome. I mean, awesome that she survived and is married and thriving and that guy can fucking rot in hell. Yes. Oh my God. What a story, dude. Hey, Sally. Yes, John. Are you ready for a nice, beautiful love story about love? I love love stories about love. I love this story. This is um, an article for Vogue magazine written by Adelie Gimmel. This is the love story about Carrie Ann and Michael Gordon. Carrie Ann is an OBGYN MD which is a medical doctor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's very fancy. Um, She's originally from Jamaica and Michael is a wireless deployment manager and he's originally from Pennsylvania. And
1: the one thing that the two of them- Jen, um, let me ask you this. Yes. What do you think a wireless deployment manager is? You know, I have no (laughs) idea.
0: I mean, that's like, like, I don't know. Throws (laughs) wires to the wind and is like, just get out there. (laughs) Get out there and be the best wires you can be. Do what you need to do. (laughs) Live your life, wires. Actually, it's wireless, so we're both idiots.
1: Oh, was that not clear before? So now,
0: <laughs> now I really don't know what he does, but I'm sure it's very important. important. I'm
1: sure it's very important work. Um, lovely. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, so he's with he's with the doctor. <laughs> yeah, he's with a
0: doctor. Uh, the one thing that they both really had in common have in common is that they're both super passionate about fitness, and that's how they first met. They met at a gym in uh, Philadelphia. And uh, Michael says, "When I met Carrie, I knew." That was a person I would love to get to know. Her energy, her aura, there was something about her. He said, I knew that if I had this person around, my life would be good. But unfortunately, they started off just as friends. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until Carrie-Anne moved to New York to complete her residency that the two of them started to develop a romantic relationship. Michael finally asked Carrie-Anne out on a date when she was on a two-week break to visit friends in Maryland. And she said it was something unconventional, not something I would ever do. But she actually ended up making a pit stop on her trip to Maryland to go see him. I know. And she said, but he seemed so sweet over the years and just concerned. I knew I'd know within five minutes if it was worth my time. And it was because they started dating immediately. And she said, even now, he still amazes me with the things he does. Mm -hmm. So two years later... When Carrie Ann was getting ready to end her uh, residency program, she, it was when she was trying to decide if she was going to apply to jobs in Philadelphia that made her realize that she wanted to commit to Michael forever. So I guess she you know, she didn't want to leave him. And so right. she was like, I'll factor you in. Yeah. <laughs> and so in December of 2018, Carrie Ann and Michael went to Jamaica for Carrie Ann's mother's wedding. And that's apparently her sister dropped a. They said dropped a not so subtle hint to Michael about <laughs> like you better marry my sister. <laughs> and You're then um, next, <laughs> yeah. And so they probably just threw the bouquet right at their faces. That's what I did <laughs> at my <laughs> yeah, wedding. I just like, tur- it was like, kind of funny. I just like pretended I was going to toss it over my shoulder, but then I turned around. And I threw it right at my best friend Anna's face, like real hard. <laughs> and it was and it worked. It worked. She was the next married. It totally worked. So after their trip to Jamaica, he, it was just a matter of time before he proposed. So he said that the first two weeks of the new year, he called her family to let them know, you know, that he was about to propose to Carrie Ann. And he went ring shopping with the help of his sister. And then he, you know, devised this plan. Carrie Ann, you know, being a doctor has very few days off. And so on one of their few days off, they went to um, a mutual friend's birthday party. Michael had their family and friends gather at his house to set up an engagement surprise party. And yeah, the plan was for Michael to fake being sick and then tell Carrie Ann he had to go home and like, you know, she would leave with him. And then when they would get to his house, he would propose with a garage full of family and friends in the background with the letters that spelled out the question, will you marry me, taped to them like taped to the friends and family. So sweet. That's really sweet. I know, but there was one problem. (laughs) She was like, I don't want to leave. Go yourself. (laughs) No, she was sweet and left with him. But when they got there, he couldn't get the garage door to open. Oh, (laughs) Carrie Ann said, once we were in the driveway, he was the most flustered I'd ever seen him. Oh, he was going crazy that the garage door wouldn't open. And I wasn't sure why. You know, she was probably thinking like, let's just use the front door. (laughs) But once it did open, um, she said all she could see was feet. (laughs) And her reaction, she said that she was um, really about to turn around and just run, you know, when she sees all these feet in the garage. (laughs) yeah. But then um, she saw him on one knee and she said she completely lost it. And Aww. they went inside the house where Carrie-Anne then discovered even more, dozens more family and friends who were all inside to help to be there to celebrate. And I was just like, do you remember family and friends at your house? <laughs> remember? remember? Remember when house. we can have Parties, I know. <laughs> so soon after they got engaged, Carrie Ann completed a residency, started her new full-time job, and she was doing this all while planning her dream wedding, which is very, very stressful. And very she's, stressful. She's a doctor. I mean, so she's <laughs> got like important stuff going on. And then to add to her stress, as the date was nearing, daily reports of the coronavirus pandemic spread made it clear that they would have to postpone the wedding. And this part breaks my heart. Carrie Ann says, I sat on my couch and cried as I drafted the email to my family. My heart was overwhelmed by everything, but still they knew that they wanted to get married this summer wedding or not, as long as it would be memorable. Yeah, and so the place that Carrie Ann had originally planned to have her bridal shower at, this place called the Logan Hotel, started offering their garden to any bride or groom whose ceremony had been affected by COVID Isn't that awesome?
1: That is really nice So
0: sweet, and so the venue allowed for 25 guests, just enough so that was just enough for Carrie Ann and Michael's immediate family and a few friends to attend. So the hotel only had two dates available and the couple decided that I'll take we'll take June 6th. And mm-hmm. so even with something so short notice, Carrie Ann still was like I'm going to make this still the most beautiful, elegant and memorable wedding. And so it was important to them that they maintained their original theme which was clean and pristine. They wanted everything to be classy, simple, and elegant. So she got a photographer from Maryland. Her flowers were super important to her. She said that that was the biggest part of her bill, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I understand, you know, if you can't have the dream, flowers yeah, are yeah. important and, you know, you want to make a beautiful environment. And so she said she was nervous that the chairs would look too sparse and scattered because all of the seating had to be six feet apart for all the right. guests. But the lovely floral arrangements on the chairs and on the columns just made it look full and beautiful. I can just picture it. It sounds gorgeous. Um, And they had a cellist, A.G. Evans, play at the ceremony. And Reverend Roxanne Birchfield was the officiant. The couple's pastor even called in from New York for the blessing. They had their wedding all set and perfect, even with just two weeks' notice. Uh, but Carrie Anne's dress was still overseas—the one that she had originally ordered. So right. for, she went to a local boutique called So Pretty Bridal Studio for what they call a Hail Mary. You know, she was like, <laughs> Do a- "After a twelve-hour shift at work, which." being a doctor you can imagine during covid was very stressful right. um, she went in for a 4 hour fitting I and mean, she said like i didn't even know my style or what i would feel comfortable in and she bought a dress and then as soon as she left the boutique around midnight she immediately texted them and was like I don't want this dress anymore. And I had a change of heart and changed her mind and it ended up going with this other gown that she had tried on. The reason that I'm going into all these tiny little details of their wedding was because they had every detail set in place and they thought that they had every single scenario accounted for. But one thing that they didn't account for was they didn't know that That was going to be the day, one of the largest Black Lives Matter protests in history. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a few days before the wedding, the hotel did notify the couple that the um, protesters were planning a peaceful demonstration in front of the hotel in downtown Philadelphia. Carrie Ann said, at first, our biggest concern was rain, and then it became the protest. But it didn't stop them from moving forward uh, because of their demanding work schedules. They hadn't been able to join a protest themselves. And Carrie Ann thought like we, it would be really nice to join a protest. We're watching the movement. We're feeling the movement. We haven't had the chance. So all around the world in all 50 States, hundreds of thousands of individuals have been taking to the streets to protest police brutality and racism against black people in a movement that has continued to grow every day since George Floyd's murder at the hands of police officers on May 25th, 2020. It's a major turning point in our nation's history. Like I said, the date of June 6th happened to fall on the day of Philadelphia's largest protest ever. Mm -hmm. So as the couple was getting ready for their wedding, they were getting ready for the first look, which a lot of people do now is where you take pictures before the wedding of you guys seeing each other for the first time. It's normally, you know, ours was outside in a courtyard. I don't, you know, people do do them in different places, Mm -hmm. but they said that they could hear as they were getting ready for it, the protesters started coming towards the hotel. They said, we could hear the sounds in the air. We could hear the sounds of the helicopters above us. You could almost feel the energy around you. And in addition to that, we're about to get married. This is what carrie Ann said. And she said, while I was getting ready in the hotel, I'm reading over vows that I wrote five months ago. At that moment, I was just so overwhelmed with emotion. We had already had a lot built up inside because of the protests you know, over the past week. So seeing that we were embarking on this together and everything that we've been through, and now we're on the forefront of America fighting for justice and trying to push for positivity and change. I'm not only proud as a black woman and a black professional, I'm so proud of him to represent who we are as people. So Carrie Ann stepped outside in her wedding dress and protesters started to gather around her, cheering her on as she was waiting for Michael to meet her. Oh, I know, I get and chills. so I know this whole thing. Like the first time I read this, I was like bawling. Okay, so uh, Michael says I was around the corner and I couldn't see Carrie and was just waiting. All of a sudden, I started hearing the crowd around the corner, and I realized that it was all for Carrie. I come running around the corner. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> I like am running around the corner and I see Carrie standing with a circle of people around her just cheering. She's literally standing there looking like a black princess. That's all I see. These peaceful protesters, positive energy, cheering, yelling, people with their phones out taking pictures and videos, and Carrie's just standing there looking beautiful as can be. And I walked up to her and took her hand. <laughs> like, sorry, I need to get it together. <laughs> I walked up to her and I took her hand and she was shaking the energy and passion. Everything that was going on was just blowing through her. It was the most empowering thing to be there at that moment. The narrative of love of black love doesn't always get put out there, but that's what this movement is about. And that's what we're looking for. Black love is beautiful thing. Black love exists. Black love is powerful. And so after the ceremony, um getting it together. Um <laughs> <laughs> After the ceremony the couple originally planned to take photos throughout the city, but instead they ended up taking photos in a field in their neighbor neighborhood and which people gave them room to space out so that they can get their pictures. But meanwhile, the pictures that the protesters took of Michael and carrie and standing together in her beautiful dress and his tuxedo were just so powerful. They were going viral very, very fast. And yeah. so Carrie-Anne said, we expected this to be a very quick and low key, but... As they left for their honeymoon, they just went to like a, what they're calling a mini moon and they'll eventually go on a bigger honeymoon to Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, when they were on their way there is when they realized that, oh my God, this totally has gone viral. They had a plan to not reveal their what they're calling their micro wedding mm-hmm. to a wider circle for some time because... They wanted people to still be excited about the 2021 date. Like I said, the images of them just spread like wildfire. And she said, uh, and Michael said, literally no one was supposed to know about this. We failed horribly. This, <laughs> turned, in, this turned into something we are never, ever, ever going to forget. And I, I,
1: uh, that, I just looked up a picture and I'm like, have chills. <laughs> I
0: bit. know, uh, It's, uh, it's just such a beautiful story. And the the part that just like, they're so beautiful, their love is beautiful. And the part that really like, hits is that I can't believe that they would ever have to feel like they have to prove that their love is beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, right. And that's why we're all protesting because I can't believe that there would people out there and there obviously are people that don't believe that. Black love is a beautiful thing or that it exists or that it's powerful.
1: They seem like they both really appreciate each other and that they're like amazing partners. And I hope that they have a beautiful wedding and a beautiful life. And I'm just so happy that they happened to step out during that protest and that we got to be introduced to them because they're – yeah. Yeah, what a what an amazing story and what an amazing wedding. <laughs> That's I, pretty pretty memorable. I can't
0: wait to share some of their photos because now, like, I can't believe I never s- scrolled all the way down through all the pictures on the article. But because all I was looking at were pictures from the protest, but there are these pictures from the garden wedding, and they're so beautiful. And then pictures of her in a field, and just. Breathtaking. And they had a dove, which is cool. They released a dove. (laughs) Dang.
1: (laughs) That's awesome.
0: And they had a (laughs) douche. And they had a dove. I didn't
1: have a dove. I didn't have a dove. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. You had a corona wedding and you had a dove, Man. Lucky. <laughs> you need to step up. <laughs> what am I even doing with my life? Um,
0: well, that was but that's Thank my love for, story. Yeah. Sorry, I cried so much. Uh, I love it, it's a, it's a
1: beautiful story. <laughs> it's nice to hear, like, it's nice to hear a nice love story, you know? It is, it really is. Should we do something dumb, something we love? Let's do it. Okay, so my something dumb is Confederate statues. (laughs) That's dumb. They're so dumb. And my something I love is that indicator where we live. Yeah. Last night, there has been a statue. It's this huge obelisk. That has been a, a Confederate monument that has stood in Decatur Square, which is uh, the middle of our little little town. You know, people have been trying to get it to come down, and there is all this. It, in Georgia, it's super hard to remove monuments by law because we live in a racist ass state. But last night, the monument came down. Hell um, yeah! And I'm just, I'm just really happy. It couldn't, you know, it happened on Juneteenth, and that's when we're recording this. And it just is. Uh, it's really it's powerful to show what the community can do when they come together and as a force for good. And it was it's really amazing. So I'm just I'm happy for that. I'm happy for. I hope that next we get to Stone Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. And if you guys but, um, don't know what Stone Mountain is, which I didn't before I moved here, it's literally uh, some Confederate generals carved into a fucking mountain like their Rushmore. And, and people right go outside. and watch a light, a laser light show displayed on it. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a uh, amusement park kind of place. Like people go yeah. hike there, whatever. And it's crazy. I've never, we've never been. Ben and I are just like, I can't believe this is a place that's ten minutes from our house in Atlanta. It's a disgrace. And um, and I hope that's next. I hope that motherfucker just gets me <laughs> lasered too. right off. Okay.
0: Who would got? should we laser on? Ooh. Instead. Who would Dolly you want Parton? to see it then? Dolly Parton is a great choice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, J- Jason Bateman?
1: <laughs> Barack Obama. Motherfucking Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey. Yes. <laughs> I have been I'm sorry I for the number of times I said motherfucker this episode. She's I just fired up I'm fired up. I got really I got really inspired by Christy Salters. who <laughs> loves to say not going to fucking kill me today, motherfucker, right? Um cool. Are you ready um
0: for my something something So something <laughs> yes. dumb. I think I'm just going to agree with you on all the things you just said. Those are all dumb. Yeah. Um dumb. and what's dumb? I guess antiquated the something I love is there is this new show on HBO. It's called We Are Here. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of it? I have not. It's Okay. So it is a show where three drag queens – so Bob the Drag Queen, Shangela, and Eureka from RuPaul's Drag Race. Do you watch it? I don't. You know I watch all this stuff. (laughs) So they go into small towns and usually very conservative small towns and they help – People do, I guess, they put together a, a drag show and they help people that do drag that have either wanted to come out or wanted to express themselves more or wanted to show solidarity for their child who is gay. It's a really great, amazing, like you'll laugh, you'll cry. I cried a lot. Something's wrong with me this week. I'm just crying. It's <laughs> an emotional um, time. Man. I cried so much. But um, it's so very eye-opening because... You have these thoughts. First of all, you have these thoughts in your head. but Even though we're in the state of Georgia, we are in a sort of a liberal pocket here. Yes, and you yeah. kind of just and you forget that there are scenes where they're walking through the streets and people are literally calling the police on them. Yeah. For walking down the street. And you're just like, what? And like they're so scared. They're so terrified of them. And you forget that. But then on the flip side, sometimes you think, oh, small conservative towns, they're going to be – they're racist, and they're this and they're that, and they're homophobic. But then there are little pockets of those towns where there there is a drag community, and mm-hmm. there is an LGBT community, and there are people that support that. And it's just really compelling and, like I said, eye-opening, and I, I can't stop watching it. And I invite all of you guys to watch it and also cry a lot because there's a lot of crying in
1: it. Let but it's also fun. Jam. Yeah. Will you give me your HBO Go password? (laughs) (laughs) I will. I will give. All of you guys email me and I'll give you all my HBO password. I'm excited to watch that. Sounds amazing. I could use a good cry. Um, And laughs, like they're so funny.
0: The three of them are so fucking funny.
1: Okay, well, thank you guys again for for all your donations this week. Thank you for listening. If you want, you should join us on Patreon. You can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, all at Dumb Love Podcast. Or you can email us your love stories, which we would really love, at dumblovepod at gmail.com.
0: Yeah, do those things. And also, stay at home or go outside with a face mask on and social distantly do something dumb for love.